you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. If you have one of those blue Bibles in the back, page 592. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 4. We'll read that in a minute. How many of you in your life at times have what is considered to be a knowing and doing gap? Anybody ever have a knowing and doing gap? I'll give you an example. Um, how many of you know you're supposed to floss your teeth every single night before bed? Now, for those of you that are really good, how many of you actually do that? Don't have to raise your hand. Okay, there's some of you that do. Um, you're probably my OCD friends. Uh, no, not really. But I know I'm supposed to. Do you know when I really end up flossing a lot? Right before the dentist. Oh no, I have a dentist appointment in a week. I should probably do that. And then I do it. Now I've, knock on wood, I've never had cavities. Uh, and so, I've, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm like, ah, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's like, you know, whatever. And the, they do the little, the pocket numbers and those are always pretty low. So I'm like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. There's other things in life that I think we have that knowing and doing gap. How many of you change your oil at 3,000 miles on the dot? Yeah, nobody, right? And in fact, um, if you didn't have that little sticker up in the right, uh, left-hand side of the, the window, you would have no idea where 3,000 miles actually is in the car. Uh, and, and I'm pretty good about that one, actually. Like, I, I want the car to last, and I don't do some of the other stuff. They, the radiator flush, I never do that stuff. I probably should, but I never do. But the oil, I change all the time, right? Um, a lot of other things uh, that we have there. Eating kale, that's another one. I know I'm supposed to do it, but I just don't like the taste of it. So that knowing and doing gap is pretty, pretty big there. Well, this morning, we're going to talk a little bit in 1 John about this idea of kind of this knowing and doing gap. Because, quite honestly, what we're going to talk about this morning is not groundbreaking, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's something that in a sense we all know or we should know. But I think the question much more than do we know is, are we doing or how are we applying what we know? Because when we come to life, when we come to spiritual realities, I think there's a lot of times where there's things that we know that sometimes we may not always do. So we're going to read this passage this morning. And as we read, I want you to um, take a look for some key words in this passage. So as we read, look for words that are repeated multiple times. And then we'll talk about a couple of those, probably not all of them, but some of them. Okay. It says in uh, chapter three, verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So up till now, we have seen through the book of 1 John that John is writing for a very specific purpose. He tells us at the very end of the book, in chapter 5, 
verse 16, or verse 16, verse 13, what that reason is. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is extremely confident that we can know for sure that we have eternal life. I've said this before, but for many people, they kind of look at death and what happens after death as literally like a shot in the dark. There's some hope involved, but there's no confidence. A lot of people's dreams kind of die in that graveyard, right? They've lived for all this stuff and it's over. And so John gives us this idea that, hey, you can know that you have eternal life. And the rest of this book from chapter one, verse one up till then really kind of helps us to understand that. And John gives us a lot of what we might say evidence. Now, none of the evidence that he gives us is what actually saves us from our sin, but it is evidence that we have been. So this morning, and you'll notice um, as we read those verses, they sound somewhat similar to some that we've already looked at in this book. John, kind of what he does is he hits a topic, moves on to another topic, comes back to that topic, moves on to another topic, comes back. Why? Well, he wants to reinforce. As parents, maybe if you had parents that, 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 that taught you things, did they just tell you once? Absolutely not. Right? How many times, for those parents in the room, have you told your kids to stop fighting? I mean, just this week, I'm probably in the triple digits. You know? Knock it off. What are you doing? Right? Trying my sanctification. Trying my patience and some of those things. So he's kind of repeating these things. But it's also because they matter. They're important. So as we read those verses, what were some things that stuck out to you? Somebody call out a word that you saw multiple times in there. Practice. Practice. Excellent. Practice is used, if I counted right, six times. The idea of practice, the word that is used there is kind of the word, and this word has a lot of meanings. It can mean do, make, or to basically habitually do, to do a habit. That, I think, is exactly what John is talking about here in this idea. This idea of practice is maybe the idea of lifestyle or the idea of habit. And we'll, look, we'll break that down in just a minute a little bit more. What is another word? We see the word, what else? Sinning. Sin or sinning. Sin is used, to, or derivatives of it here, 10 times in these six verses or seven verses. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Seven. All right, I have to do the math. Seven, 10 times in these seven verses. That's a lot. For you smart Alex out there, like me, the word the, the most common word in the English language, is used 10 times in this passage as well. Yes, it's a small sample size, so we could do anything with small sample sizes. But the word sin is used just as much as the word the. Because somebody was going to point that one out, I have no doubt. Another one that's used multiple times, righteous, righteousness. Right? What is righteous or righteousness? Well, it is really the idea of being in right standing with God. Maybe another way of saying it is holy. But um, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees what is right. We'll talk about how that's possible in a minute. So a couple of those things as we, as we start, um, really wanted to kind of just hit on a couple of those, so those ideas. I have in the next slide, actually not the next one, one more. Oh, that red is really hard to see. I apologize. All right. 
I'll read these. Um, what I wanted to do is kind of look at, there's a lot of parallelism in this passage. So verses, this says 1 John 3, 4 through 7. Can you even see that red? Probably not. Okay, I'll kind of read it. I thought red would show up. I was wrong. Um, and, then, uh, and, and then the blue is, three th is 8 through 10. And I stole this from a guy named John Stott. So I didn't make this up. I saw it. I thought it was really good. And I stole it. And I gave him credit. So now I'm not stealing it. Um, but what this does is this passage has kind of parallels. And John uses parallels. So introduction. Look at verses uh, 3, 4 through 7. And what does he say? Whoever practices sin. Verses 8 and 10, look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning. So, parallels, the theme, sin and lawlessness. Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Get down to verses 8 through 10, and he now has a parallel. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, not lawlessness, but is, is, is of who? devil okay so we see there's a parallel between lawlessness and the devil we'll talk about that in a minute the purpose for christ's appearing the first one he talks about christ appeared uh, we're looking at verse five uh, that he appeared to take away sins and then we see down in verse eight that he appeared to destroy the works of the devil so this says christ appeared to take away sin and this says christ appeared to destroy the devil's work and then the logical conclusion as we'll get to in a minute. Actually, you know what? Let's save the logical conclusion for the very end. But I wanted to show what he does is kind of, again, reinforces what he's saying in these two by giving us two parallels and also helps to um, illustrate to us what he actually is talking about. So let's just jump through these. Point number one, I have two points today and they're extremely, in a sense, simple. Um, number one, sin is rebellion against God and from Satan. How many, for how many, for, for how many of you is that brand new idea? <laughs> right? <clears throat> I said it's not groundbreaking, but I want us to think about that for a minute. Sin is rebellion against God and from Satan. We may know that, but when we think about our lives, how often do we live in that realm? And if you're like me, it probably happens more than we would like to admit. So as we look at this, let's look through these verses, the first couple ones, and talk about this idea of sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, what is lawlessness? It's probably something we need to actually define. The idea of lawlessness Throughout the Bible, there's a couple different ideas that it gives us. One is, in the Old Testament, what did God give his people? In like Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, he gave them the Old Testament law. And so sometimes when we see, see uh, the law referred to or lawlessness, it refers back to that. I don't think that's actually what he's referring to here. The other idea, one of the other main ideas uh, when he talks about lawlessness in the Bible is the idea of rebellion or rebelling against the lawmaker. Um, do people rebel against the law today in certain ways? Yeah, all the time, right? Um, there's certain laws where like, yeah, I heard somebody say speeding. Yeah, that's one I always go to. You're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> 70, this road clearly could let me do way more than that. Um, there is a road uh, that goes from like Beaver across the desert to Great Basin National Park. If you've never been on that road, it's one of the most deserted roads I've ever been on in my life. Uh, in 80 miles, we literally saw six cars. 
That's like an hour of, well, it's probably a little under an hour driving, if we're going to be honest. Hence the rebellion part, because I'm like, well, if I was going to hit 100, I know where it's, where it's going to happen, right? Um, and, uh, and that may or may not have happened. We'll plead the fifth and hopefully the statute of limitations is run out. But right away, it was like what? Well, this law is dumb. I'm going to rebel. We do that with a lot of different things. And I think really where God is going here is he is telling us this very thing. That sin is not just this little thing that we try to make it out to be. That sin is actually rebellion against God. That it is rebellion against the lawgiver. And if you look at the parallelism that he makes here, what does he equate lawlessness with in verses 8 through 10? It's the second thing on that list in blue. The devil. Now, it makes sense that he would do that because why? Who is the ultimate rebeller against God? Satan. From the beginning. And I think what John is trying to illustrate to his people and what God really wants us to see is the fact that sin is a big deal. That it is rebellion against God Almighty. And ultimately, it is us saying, we're going to side with Satan. Now, very few of us are actually going to go out and say, I'm on Satan's team, right? There are people that do that. But very few, hopefully nobody in here is actually going to do that. And yet what God is saying is, that is true. But when we live a life of sin, that is what we are actually saying. We're saying, eh, I'm actually going to be on Satan's team today. Which, again, should cause us to ponder and to think about that knowing and doing gap. This lawlessness, I do think, actually goes back a little bit to what we saw last week. And then especially back in chapter 2, kind of verses 18, where he talks about this idea of how there's antichrists, uh, how there is an antichrist coming, whatever that all means. And then how in verses, really, of chapter 3, verses 2, uh, he talks about the beloved, we are God's children. Um, and he talks about his second coming. When we all stand before God, we will either be on God's team or rebelling against God. And I think that is really kind of the idea there. This lawlessness is going to manifest itself when we all have to give an account before God. We stand before God, and I mean, who knows what God actually says? I don't know. I've not been there. I've not seen it yet. But, I mean, if God were to say in a sense, hey, why should I let you into heaven? What, are, what is our answer? And if our answer is anything besides, hey, I put my faith and trust in Jesus alone, the Bible tells us he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it talks about how there's going to be people that say, well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. I preached great sermons. I, sorry, that's probably not one I'll use. <laughs> uh, we casted out demons in your name. We did the, all these miracles. And he says what? Depart from me, because you've been in rebellion against me. Sin is rebellion. Practice of sin. The practice of sin also practices rebellion. We talked about the practice of sin being this idea of a lifestyle or a habit. And I think this is important because what did we see back in chapter 1, verse 8? What does he say? He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does John say about us there? 
is there ever going to be a time where we are free, completely free from sin on this earth? No. And if we say, hey, I'm sinless, you're a liar. <laughs> Strong words, it's God's words, not mine. So he's not saying, hey, if you ever sin, but what is he saying? If your life is characterized by it, if there is habitual, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, rebellion. What is the motivation he gives us for living a life apart from sin? Well, look at verse 5. Um, if you've ever played, any of you ever play Rook? Okay. Anybody ever play Spades? Okay. Let's go with Spades. It might be a little easier. In Spades, if you've never played Spades, it's a pretty simple game. But you have to follow the suit, so whatever is laid down, unless you don't have it. And then you get to play a different suit. And it's the suit of spades, or for some of us, shovels, okay? <laughs> and that suit always wins. Why? What is that called? Trump card, right? It means it is the two of spades is way better than the ace of hearts, which should never be in, in anything else. And what John does here is the same thing Paul does numerous times. He plays a trump card. He plays a trump card. Here it is. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. What is the motivation for living life apart from sin? The person and the work of Jesus. It's kind of like when in Ephesians, in Ephesians when Paul talks about the idea of husbands love your wives. As Christ loved the church, you're like, oh great. <laughs> I can't do that, right? It's kind of that trump card, like, hey, here's your motivation. This is the motivation for us to not live a life of sin. And what is it? Jesus. Jesus. It's not that I want you to. It's not how good I am. It's not how good you are. It is Jesus. His death on the cross. He came to take away sin. And we also see later he came to take away the works of the devil. Now, something that's interesting about this. Look at verse 7. How is Satan working? Little children... Obviously, there's that care again that we've seen throughout this. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. For the people in John's letter, as we've talked about, there is a lot of deceit going on. You have these people who are false teachers who once were part of the church, they've left the church, and now they're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching, hey, Jesus wasn't actually fully man. That's a big thing. He, he's not fully God. That's a big thing. They're saying, hey, we have no sin, and or our sin doesn't matter. We have people that say this today. Well, God's forgiven it, so I can do whatever I want. And he says, absolutely not. If you come up with any of those ideas, you are being deceived, tricked, fooled. I enjoy... Um, I'm not very good at it. I can't do this real well with adults, but I love with kids um, taking something that's small and getting them to guess which hand it is when I do this. And with adults, I don't I'll do all that well. With kids, I'm pretty good. So that's why I do it with kids because it makes me feel good, right? What is the whole purpose of this? Hey, here it is. Where did it go? And now they have to guess. Whole goal is trick them. And then you get a, then you actually, oh, what is that over there? You throw it behind your back and then you, oh, it's not in either hand, right? Something that's very simple, something that's kind of stupid, but that's how Satan works. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, what did he say to, to Eve? A lie. 
A half-truth, but a lie. And ever since then, he works to deceive. When he says, God is holding out on you. What are some ways that Satan says God is holding out on people today? And he says, hey, God said truth is important, but you know what? In this instance, it's okay to tell a little lie. God said, um, you know, we just read in Ephesians, hey, don't steal, work hard. Well, yeah, but this person has a lot. They deserve a little, they're a jerk. They deserve me to take a little bit. Maybe it's your boss, right? Maybe it's, you know, well, the company doesn't pay me as much as they should. So I'm going to fool around a little bit more to kind of make up for that gap. I'm not going to work as hard as I should. Well, that's stealing. Where does that come from? Does that come from God? No, right? Well, I mean, God said, you know, hey, I'm supposed to, uh, sex is reserved for marriage, but that's not, he's just holding out on you. No, right? These are all the things God is telling us what truth is, and we have the option to follow it or not. Uh, and that's where he comes down and says, look, sin is rebellion. Sin is, Satan's looking to trick you. All right, second point. Number one, sin is rebellion against God and from Satan. So if sin comes from God, point number two, righteousness, or if, sorry, I, let me do that again. I, that was heresy. Sin is against God. Let's do that. And from Satan. So if sin is against God, whew, glad I caught that, especially with it being recorded. Um, if sin is against God, where does righteousness come from? Righteousness is from God. From God. Righteousness is from God. Contrast between those who practice sin and those who practice righteousness. Look up at chapter 2, verse 29. He says, If you know that God, He, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He, as God, as Jesus, is pure. Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The truth is, we can do a lot of stuff to look pretty good just on our own. A lot of people in the world look pretty good, right? I mean, you don't have a ton of people going out and just doing these wicked massive things that are going to get them in huge trouble. But when we see that's not God's standard of righteousness, what is God's standard of righteousness? It's holiness. It is being set apart from sin, set apart from whatever to God. We could go with perfection, and in Jesus we, we, we have that as God sees us, but righteousness, that, that, that idea of being in the right standing with God, doing what is right. For, this is kind of the most important part, the right reasons. The right motivation. For most people in the world, why do they do what's right? So other people think good of them. So I don't go to jail. <laughs> right? Why do most people go within five of the speed limit? Because if you don't, what happens? Get a 200 or 300 or whatever dollar ticket. Right? I don't... Praise God, so far I've not gotten a ticket. may have over the years been pulled over once or twice, but I've never gotten a ticket. But that's why they do these things. If there was no ticket, what would, what would the roads be like? It'd be the Audubon. If there was no threat, right? I still think that's not a world's worst idea. Uh, have one lane where you just go, whatever you want. But if there was no threat, nobody would follow it. 
It's kind of like if you have seen at the store, you ever see at the store, maybe um, a parent, I'll say, sometimes you see, it's usually, not always, but a lot of times it's a dad who is there and the kid is being kind of bad. And the dad's like, hey, if you don't do this, you're gonna get in trouble. Or if you don't stop, you're gonna get in trouble. And the kid doesn't stop, and the kid doesn't stop, and the kid doesn't stop, and they just get progressively worse. And they never get in trouble. You're like, well, no wonder they're progressively worse because what? There's no teeth to the, you're gonna get in trouble. With all of that, that's really, I think, a lot of the times why most people do what is right or have some semblance of what is right. They want other people to look good at them. Whereas he tells us here, no, that's not really the whole motivation behind it. We see that a person who has truly been born again, a person who has truly been saved, will not have this lifestyle of disobedience because they are actually righteous. Look at this in verse 9. No one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, abides or lives in, in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you are truly saved, you are a new creation. We looked at that a little bit in that Ephesians passage. He talks about the new man. In Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read just a couple verses. Um, I'll start in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the uh, image of the Creator. Put off the old self, put on the new self. At the moment of salvation, you are given a new person, if you will, a new, a, new, a new identity. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. He is helping you. This is why John, if he's giving these people evidence, hey, you want to know that you're in Christ? Look at your life. Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is there? Or is there evidence that you are just living however you feel like with no care? And if you are living like you however you want with no care and you don't care about sin what is john's conclusion we'll look at it in a minute it's yeah you have no confidence that you actually know god or you should have no confidence but if you care about your sin if you're torn up when you sin if there's repentance that is a great evidence of what the holy spirit being inside of you and the fact that you actually know god the fact that you actually know god so righteousness comes from god so his conclusion, verse 10, by this it is evident. By this it is plain for all to see, or it should be plain for all to see, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he adds something in here at the very end that's going to be the whole point of this next passage, one we've already looked at, and he hits again, nor does the one who does not love his brother aspect of righteousness. So this morning, I have a couple different things I want us to think about. Really, one idea is true followers of Jesus will be transformed or changed. We won't look like and act like the unbelieving world around us. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that there is growth. There is change. Sometimes 
I think what happens is sometimes somebody comes and they put their faith and trust in Jesus and then people who've been saved for years expect them to look and act just like them very quickly overnight. And they do whatever they can to try to make that happen, right? Hey, you need to do this, this, and this. But very quickly, after they start looking that part, everybody's content. And we're content rather than to continue to see growth, to see plateau. My friends, this right here should not be our Christian life. It should not be our Christian state. Yeah, it might be a little bit more like this, but there's that constant, hey, there's growth. If there's not growth, why not? Right? John says, be concerned. We get comfortable. We get lazy. And we're kind of like that heartbeat that's not beating anymore. That We want the beat. Transformation. If, the, if somebody who didn't know, one thing I like to use a lot, and I say this time and again because I think it's, well, it's beneficial for me anyway. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would you get convicted? Or would you be exonerated for lack of evidence? Especially if they took out Sunday as being one of your evidences. If they took out Sunday and look just from Monday to Saturday, would you be convicted of being a Christian or would you be exonerated for lack of evidence? It's kind of a tough question, isn't it? I like tough questions. They're good for me. True followers of Jesus have practiced or they have a lifestyle of obedience and righteousness. To a follower of Jesus, sin isn't meaningless. Again, the people that John is writing against, they have come to say, my sin doesn't matter. And what does God say? No, it matters a whole lot. Enough, in fact, that I sent Jesus to die for this? Do we, are we at the place in our life where sin doesn't matter to us? Hopefully not. <coughs> Followers not of Jesus have a pattern or practice of a lifestyle of sin and they are revealing who they really are by it. James chapter 1, where some of you probably thought we were going this morning when I did, went with the idea of hearers and doers. James chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to turn over there if I can actually get there. Very, it just says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Most of us looked in the mirror one, at least once this morning. Maybe twice. Maybe for lots of time. And what John or J James here illustrates is the idea of being a hearer of the word, but not actually applying it, is like a person who looks in the mirror, sees, hey, I got, you know, something on my face, and just never does anything about it. My kids do that sometimes. Like, did you not see the strawberry jelly on your face? Well, I did. Wash it off. But that's, as silly as that sounds, that's what he illustrates here with us. Be doers of the word. So, application. Are you seeing your life transformed by Jesus? Have you seen growth in your life in the last year? In the last five years? 
And I think a lot of times it's easier to look over that longer span. I'll use this as an illustration. I know even in, in church planning at times, it's, easy, it's much better to look over the long term, right? If you look sometimes week by week, you're like, oh my word, discouraged or this or that. But if you look over a month or if you look over six months or if you look over a year, all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, yeah, God did this and God did this and God did this and God did this. Wow, he is working. This is great, right? So we all have those struggles in life. We all have those times where they're hard. And it's easy to focus on those. But look at, hey, where is God helping you to grow in your life? Where are you seeing that transformation? Celebrate that. But also, what areas of your life are you not seeing change? Why not? Right? Look at those. Do you hate your sin? Do you care? And do we think of our sin as bad as it really is? Rebellion against God. We talked a little bit about how at the beginning of time, Satan rebelled against God. We see as God threw into motion at that point, this plan where Jesus would come years later to take away that punishment. But we see, hey, when Satan rebelled, when Adam and Eve rebelled, when all of us have rebelled, what did sin bring? Sin brings death. It brings separation from God. Enough to where we can't ever on our own bridge that chasm. There's a canyon that we can't build a bridge across, and that's really what that cross did. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that, Jesus, that, that we couldn't, but he did because he was God. He died the death that we deserved and rose again to hope eternal, rose again to new life. Something that gives us hope for the future. And that is what the Bible again and again talks about the idea that, hey, for the payment of sin, the wages of sin, the just deserved fruit of our sin is what? It's death. It's not popular, is it? <laughs> I don't like to think about that. I mean, that's not fun. Yet that's reality. And he says, but the gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life. My friends, there's nothing that you can do to come to God on your own. There's no amount of good. None. Why? Well, number one, that's not how God set it up, quite frankly, right? He's God. He gets to determine whatever he wants to do. But two, Ephesians 2 tells us if we could do enough good, what would we do about it? We boast. Yeah, look how good I am. I did all this for God. Takes away the whole point of it, right? For by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Otherwise, we'd all boast. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, today's a great day for that, right? Stop living in rebellion to God and live in relationship with Him. Number three. What areas of your life look more like the world than God? Maybe another way of saying that is, what do you need to change or have God change in your life? Maybe a third way of saying that same thing a little bit differently is, what sin in your life do you love more than you love God? That's a convicting one for me because there's definitely some things probably that are there. Um... What do we love more than we love God? 
And then as we start talking about this idea of righteousness and patterns, the other trap that we fall into <clears throat> is it's very easy to look at others and then start comparing ourselves to other people. Start judging other people and like, well, yeah, that person's whatever. And not look at ourselves. Right? It's really easy for me to point out sin in Nathan while being blind to my own sin. Now, thankfully, I don't know Nathan's sin all that well. But still, it'd be pretty easy to be like, oh, he's a terrible person. He does this and this and this. All the while not looking. Right? So we then start judging other people. It doesn't mean their sin's any less. But I also need to look at myself. It also does mean there might be times where we do need to go to somebody else. If I know Josiah's involved in something, like, hey, Josiah, let's sit down, let's chat. You know, hey, I've noticed this. But that also then allows me to be vulnerable too and to say, hey, what do you see with me? And that's usually where we stop, isn't it? Because we sure don't want people to actually reveal who we really are. We try to hide that. We mask it. No, don't. And then the last thing that we sometimes do is we start setting up, I think the best thing I can think is legalistic rules to try to help us to, 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 to not be involved with certain sin. And then we put those in other people. That's the other thing we shouldn't do, right? <clears throat> There's nothing wrong if you have rules, if you have your own standards, jolly good, great. But if it's not in here, <clears throat> be very careful to not put it here. This is why there are certain things where I'm not going to do certain things, but if the Bible doesn't explicitly say, hey, thou shalt not, or whatever, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. There are certain things where I'm like, yeah, that's a rule. That's what the Bible says. You know, don't do that. But if there's other things where it's like, man, I'm not sure that's wise. I'm not sure that's best. But we're not going to, in a sense, make it a rule. Because God's word doesn't. And usually when you see that played out, <clears throat> excuse me, it plays out in some pretty crazy rules. Usually it's like institutions. Sometimes institutions have like ridiculous rules. My high school had a whole bunch of ridiculous rules. But why they had ridiculous rules is because there were ridiculous students ahead of me. <clears throat> we had a rule in our yearbook, or a yearbook, or a rule book, that you couldn't hang roadkill from the flagpole. <laughs> Now, <clears throat> I think that's called common sense, but there were some, for lack of a better term, idiot kids that had thought it was a good idea to do that. So they made a rule that you couldn't do it because otherwise they couldn't get these kids in trouble for doing that. Like, whatever. But I think that's kind of what we tend to do sometimes. We see this and we're like, well, this is sin. And then we try to put a buffer zone, which is fine. But now we say, you all must follow my buffer zone. We look very much like what the Pharisees did in the Bible. And so that's the other thing where I want to just give us a little caution is, hey, we don't sin. We don't lead others to sin. But we also don't put on rules to people to where we now say our rules are akin to God's rules. And we're very quick to do that too. Righteousness. Sin. Again, as we look at this, none of this is earth shattering. None of this is new. In fact, some of this we probably talked about a month ago. We're probably going to talk about it again if you look at what's going on in some verse chapters ahead. But to God, it's kind of important. To God, it's kind of important. And so I leave you with this idea this morning. Love righteousness. Love God. Hate sin. Hate it.
be knowers of the word and doers as well. Let's pray. Dear God,